1917, the year of the Balfour Declaration, a year that was critical in establishing the state of Israel. And hopefully by the end of tonight, you will all agree that not only was this year critical in laying the foundations for the future state of Israel in 1948, but also how such a, a series of extraordinary events, which we're about to look at now, only makes sense if you accept God was behind them all, that the angels of God were at work. But before I say any more, let's get into the subject and let me first introduce you to the people in British government at that time. We're going to take a, a close look at the cabinet and we're going to see in a moment that each member has an in interesting story to tell. Well, as I said, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, and then here is Lord Balfour. And the Balfour family were an interesting family, and, and they were also um, known to be very religious. And Bible reading was part of family life in the Balfour family. And it's also believed, quite significantly, I feel, that a Christadelphian nanny used to look after the young Balfour, and gave him a copy of Elpis Israel. And we certainly know that Brother Robert Roberts, uh, one of our earlier Christadelphian um, brothers and uh, an editor of the Christadelphian magazine, contacted Lord Balfour in 1890 and sent him a copy of a book called Nazareth Revisited, a book that he wrote. And also, I think, it's significant that when Balfour died, another brother, Brother C.C. Walker, another editor of the Christadelphia magazine at the time, was invited to attend his funeral service. So that's all quite interesting, isn't it? And then there's David George, and he was a Welshman. And when he was only two years of age, his father sadly died. And he was brought up by his mother with support from his uncle. And his uncle went by the name of Lloyd. In fact, Later on in life, David George added the name Lloyd, so he became David Lloyd George, in recognition of his uncle. And his uncle was a Baptist lay preacher. Now, bear in mind that David Lloyd George is going to become Prime Minister of Britain during the First World War. And it's amazing that a, a young David knew the names of the kings of Israel before he knew those of England. And that's well reported. And at 14, he left school and he went to practice law. And we also have read records that uh, round about that time, he did a little bit of lay preaching and he was well known in his local Welsh chapel. Uh, how things have changed in Parliament. You couldn't imagine that today, I guess, in Britain. So he leaves education and he joins a, a local law practice in Wales and amazingly, one of his first projects of David Lloyd George, one of his first projects, and he was showing no signs really of, of, um, of pursuing a career in politics. He wanted to become a lawyer. And one of his first projects as a lawyer was to draw up a plan for a new client, none other than Theodore Herzl. Now that's incredible, isn't it? Just think, a young lawyer in a small Welsh practice being contacted by Theodore Herzl the founder of the Zionist movement from Vienna, Austria. And what is more, the plan Herzl asked 
David Lloyd George to develop was a charter for the Jewish settlement, the first such charter in 2000 years. In fact, Lloyd George presented this charter to the Foreign Office in 1903 when Balfour was Prime Minister, but it was going to be another decade or so before this proposal would become acceptable in government circles. And I've also conducted a little more uh, research and it's believed that Brother Joe Thomas from the Nethley Ecclesia served David Lloyd George at this time. So there's a lot of connections, in fact, to Christadelphians. And there were several other cabinet ministers and members at this time, and, and, and many of them were firm believers in something called restoration theory. I don't know whether you've come across that phrase before, but restoration theory was all about the, the, the belief that the Jews would return back to Palestine and would be converted to Christianity before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's restoration theory. And there are many in the cabinet that believe that, that they believe that the Jews would go back and they would believe in the Bible. And then when they believed in the Bible, Jesus Christ would come to establish God's kingdom. So add to that number, there was another man, the most famous of all, Sir Winston Churchill. And to everybody's surprise, in July 1917, Lloyd George appointed him to be the, the Minister of Munitions. He was the one who, uh, who was going to take responsibility of the war effort, really, and, and he joined the cabinet. And a lot of people were very surprised at the time. But to quote Lloyd George, he appointed Churchill, he said, to cheer me up when surrounded by gloomy faces. And you can well imagine Churchill doing that. Much later, Churchill said to Dwight Eisenhower, the president of America, I am, of course, a Zionist, he says and have ever been since the Balfour Declaration. And Zionism is all about this, this, this fervent belief, passion of the Jews going back to their, the land that's been promised their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's the, the Zionist movement. And Churchill said that he was a Zionist himself ever since the Balfour Declaration, which we're going to consider tonight. And what an incredible role this man, Churchill, would play in this war we're going to see and the next one in World War II. A very special man indeed, raised by God. And finally then, enter Dr. Kain Weissman and he picked up where Theodore Herzl left off. He was a, a Jewish immigrant from Russia and he was also a brilliant scientist. He was appointed lecturer in chemistry at the University of Geneva in 1901, and he moved to the University of Manchester in 1904. In 1906, Balfour had been busy campaigning for another term as prime minister, and he was at his election headquarters in a Manchester hotel. And he set aside 15 minutes to, to meet with Weizmann at the time. But in the end, the meeting would last a whole hour. When they met, Balfour asked Weizmann why the Zionists were so bitterly opposed to the Ugandan offer. And the, the, the offer of Uganda, or Kenya today, was in response to the terrible attacks that were taking place on the Jews in Russia. And the British government hoped that this area would cause um, a bit of refuge from the persecution. And so rather than offering them the land of Palestine, 
they offered them Uganda or Kenya for all the Jews to be gathered together and to live in Kenya. And, and Balfour thought Weizmann would be over the moon, but he was a little disappointed that Weizmann and the Zionists rejected it. And he wanted to understand why, why they had rejected it. So when they met, Weizmann said to Balfour, if Moses had come into the sixth Zionist Congress, when it was adopting the resolution in favor of the commission of Uganda, he would surely have broken the tables once again. Years later, Weizmann wrote in his memoirs, when he writes about when he met with the prime minister, he says, I was sweating blood and trying to find some less ponderous way of expressing myself. Suddenly I said, Mr. Balfour, supposing I were to offer you Paris instead of London, would you take it? He sat up, looked at me and answered, but Dr. Weizmann, we have London. That is true, I said, but we had Jerusalem when London was just a marsh. He leaned back and continued to stare at me. I did not see him again till 1914. Well, immediately following this meeting, Balfour's party lost the general election, but the seeds have been planted in Balfour's mind for a later time, in fact, for 10 years, when all these men would be reassembled in 10 Downing Street and they would be facing Germany during the First World War. I want to go forward a little bit of time now to the First World War and there was a major problem. And the problem was that Britain had run out of acetone. And this was a, a really important component, really, an ingredient for gunpowder. And up till then, it had been imported from Germany, but because the Allies were at war with Germany, that was no longer possible. And the US only had a scarce supply, and it was very, very expensive to import it from America. So the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, asked Weizmann, this brilliant scientist, whether there was an alternative way of making acetone in large quantities. And immediately, Weizmann, as his reputation was, he said, yes. And he goes on to invent a new process to produce it. And it was a, a brilliant discovery and would change the course of the war. And by doing so, it changed the course of history. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, later in his personal war memoirs, records how he proposed to recommend Dr. Weizmann for some great honour for coming up with this, this idea of how to mass produce acetone. But Weizmann rejected the idea outright. He didn't want any personal reward. So Lloyd George asked him, is there anything, Dr. Weizmann, we can do in recognition of your valuable assistance to the country? And Weizmann swiftly answered, Yes, I would like you to do something for my people. And so the cabinet deliberated and finally came to a decision. And when telling Dr. Weizmann, Lord Mark Skypes, the secretary of the war cabinet cried the words, Dr. Weizmann, it's a boy. And the reason why he said that is because there was a genuine sense that this had given birth to Israel's return. Britain was going to support now the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people. Well, today you can see this declaration, the Balfour Declaration in the British Library in London. And if you can see that on the screen and you've got it annotated on the right-hand side there, you, you can notice that it's one long sentence. In fact, I've counted up the words, 67 words. 
and now it's just on a ragged piece of paper in storage. But if you reflect a little bit upon this, this, this Balfour Declaration, this piece of paper, it has cast a long shadow over the whole 20th and now the beginning of the 21st century. There's a lot of tension around this Balfour Declaration because it was about establishing a homeland for the Jews, but it caused a lot of animosity with the Arabs who were also living in Palestine at the time. Well, I want us to think a little bit about the Balfour Declaration. So who better to call upon to read this letter than Lord Jacob Rothschild? He's the great nephew of Lord Walter. And Lord Walter was the one who was the recipient of the Balfour Declaration. You can see at the top of that letter that it's written to Lord Walter and Lord Jacob here is his great nephew, his surviving nephew, and he's going to read out the Balfour Declaration to us. His Majesty's Government, you're with favour the establishment of Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing should be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation, yours, Arthur Balfour. And here it is, the Balfour Declaration. What do you feel when you, when you see it here? I genuinely feel it's one of the most extraordinary moments in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, if you think it took 3,000 years uh, to get to this. And then you say, how did this miracle happen? What a great question from Lord Rothschild there. How did this miracle happen? Well, we can see from the little bit of history that we've looked at that Weizmann, Professor Weizmann, he influenced the British government and, and the country elite. But how was this possible? How could this great scientist influence the British government? And you might be thinking, well, he invented acetone and that's the reason. But I think it's a, a little more than that. Weizmann was born in a, a little town in Russia, a little village called Motul. And this was a town that the Jews could go to to free themselves from some of the terrible Russian persecutions. They're called pogroms. Some of the Jewish persecution that was taking place across Russia at the time. And so Motul was one of these places that you would go to to escape persecution. And that's where Weizmann grew up. And his mum had 15 children and he was the third of 15 children. And his father was a timber merchant. So we need to ask ourselves, you need to think about Britain really a hundred years ago. And how could a man like this, who spoke hardly any English, had no money, no reputation, who lived in Manchester, so far away from London at that time, be able to influence the British government. It's quite incredible, really. Yes, of course, he developed acetone, but why was he asked to do that in the first place? How had he created these links to the British government and the establishment? It really defies probability. It's so unlikely. Did someone help him along the way? 
And this is the story that I want to share with you now. And it's a story that I'm rather excited about. We want to spend a little time with the Rothschilds and their family. And we're going to do a little bit of research here in the family archives. So a few years back then, in 2017, when I was getting really excited about the Balfour Declaration, I wrote to the Rothschild family and I wrote to the head archivist here, this lady, Catherine Taylor, who is handpicked by Lord Jacob Rothschild. We just heard Lord Jacob just reading out the Balfour Declaration. And she's responsible for looking after all the archives of the Rothschild family. And she oversees this at a place called Windmill Hill in Buckinghamshire. And so you can imagine that there's a tremendous amount of history that she, she oversees. So I contacted her and I told her that I was a Christadelphian and I explained who the Christadelphians were, what we believed in and how the Christadelphians supported the Jews down the years, especially when the Jews were settling in Palestine during the early part of the 20th century. And then I told her about some of the research I was, I was pulling together and uh, really thinking hard about the Balfour Declaration. And she was very interested. And so she welcomed us as a family. And we had a private viewing of the, all the papers between the Rothschilds and Weizmann and Churchill and Balfour and David Lloyd George and Allenby, all the people that we're going to look at tonight and many, many more. And it was a real privilege. But before we get into that, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about Lord Walter Rothschild, the recipient of the Balfour Declaration. The British government wrote to him. And this man was totally eccentric, right? And it's quite surprising that he converted to being a Zionist because he was very happy with the way things were in Britain. But he became passionate on the subject of Zionism after meeting with Weizmann. But his big interest, his big passion was creating the finest private collection of natural history specimens ever made by one man. And maybe some of you have been and seen his museum, the Natural History Museum in Tring. And, and that was his life's work. And Lord Walter, he never married, and he would often be seen riding uh, a carriage led by um, his own zebras round the local park in London. And sometimes you may even see him on top of one of his 144 giant tortoises that came from the Galapagos Islands, right? So he was a, a bit of an amusement, um, very eccentric. And he was really the leader of the Zionist movement in Britain. And as I said, the recipient of this letter. But there was a more serious side to him too. He was a renowned scholar. And he had the distinction of being a fellow of the Royal Society. And he wrote over 1,200 books and papers based on his collections. And he soon became seen as the lay leader of the Jewish community in Britain. And this is why then the Balfour Declaration was personally written to him. Now, while Walter was growing his own private collection, there was another Rothschild growing in prominence. And he was on the French side. So Lord Walter was on the British side. This man, James or Jimmy, he was on the French side of the family. In 1913, he married the lady that you can see on the screen there, a lady called Dorothy, and it was a whirlwind engagement. They only um, had met for five and a half weeks and soon they were married. And uh, she was only 18. 
And uh, looking in the diaries there, I see that she'd only just been allowed to sit down for dinner with mum and dad at 7.40, 7.45 each night. And uh, soon after that, she was, she was married to one of the most eminent Rothschilds, one of the richest men in the world. And nothing in her childhood would prepare her for life in the Rothschild family. And as you can imagine, James, he was 35 years of age at that time, and Dorothy was just 17, and he raised a few eyebrows. But providence was at work. And let me explain that. In November 1914, Dorothy was just 19 years of age, and she went to a lecture that was being led by Weizmann on the subject of Zionism, and she was absolutely gripped. But she wasn't with her husband or her father-in-law because they were both fighting away the Western Front in, in, um, on the continent during the First World War, so they weren't at home, and Dorothy was alone. She was the one who was in charge of the house, as it were. And after the speech, Dorothy went to meet Weisman and told him, she said, you really need to meet my husband and his friends. They'll be in a position to help you. And he had no idea who she was. However, she went on to say, I first need to train you in something. I need to train you in British etiquette so that you make the right impression with my husband. And uh, that sounds a little rude, but you can imagine her husband was real high society, one of the most eminent men in the world. As a, as a family, the Rothschild family owned trillions of dollars, uh, the, the richest family in the world, and he was heading up that, that family. So it was a big thing to meet James Rothschild. And that's exactly what Dorothy did, without her husband ever knowing about it. and. And Lindsay and I were able to go through these personal letters. And it was amazing to see that Weisman wrote to young Dorothy. She's just 19. Weisman wrote to young Dorothy no less than 33 times between 1914 and 1916. And with Dorothy's help, Weisman organized no less than 2,000 personal meetings with the British elite. And he wrote a further 1,000 letters. It was all due to Dorothy. Dorothy trained this man, this brilliant Russian, this head of the Zionist movement in British etiquette. And who would have thought that a young 19-year-old woman was paving the way for Weizmann and Zionism to take the British government by storm? And once again, listeners, God shows that he is in control. He uses what seems at the time to be small and insignificant to show that he is behind everything. How excellent are God's ways. Well, the other one I want to consider is General Allenby, another really important character in all of this. Allenby was nicknamed the Bull. He had a, an imposing physique. He was six foot two with an impressive barrel chest. And prior to his service in the Middle East, he was in charge of the Third Army and the cavalry on the Western Front. So what terrible sights he would have seen. He saw one million men die there. And Allenby had one child, Michael, who enlisted at a, a very young age, the age of 17. And Allenby would often go down to the office where war casualties were reported and he'd inquire, any news of my little boy today? And when the reply came, no news, sir, he would leave without being seen. 
The situation for Britain at this time was grim. The Prime Minister later wrote in his memoirs, before Allenby left for Egypt, I had an interview with him and impressed on him that we wanted a determined attack and push against the Turks. The Turks occupied Palestine at the time. With the object of driving them out of Palestine, I said to the cabinet, this is David Lloyd George, I said to the cabinet that we expected Jerusalem before Christmas. So Allenby's given these instructions. And before Allenby left for the Middle East, he met with Admirable Lord Fisher. He was the first sea lord in London. And the meeting was recorded by Lord Fisher's secretary. And this is what she wrote. And you're going to find this interesting, I'm sure. She wrote these words about their meeting. Allenby was told that he would be God's instrument for the deliverance of Jerusalem in December 1917. Stunned by Lord Fisher's words, Allenby asked him to explain his deduction. Admiral Lord Fisher, first sea lord, then spent hours discussing the Bible with General Allenby, showing him the prophecies that related to the rise of Great Britain, and lastly, the prophecies relating to the deliverance of Jerusalem in December 1917. Armed and strengthened by this knowledge, General Allenby sailed for the Middle East. Isn't that amazing? So off Allenby went. But when he arrived in the Middle East, he soon received crushing news. Tragically, his only son, Michael, had just been killed. He was just 20 years of age. And Allenby was reduced to public tears for the first time. Yet somehow, Allenby still found the strength to carry on with the war effort. And he asked for his wife to join him. And they together led the British military. After a number of great victories, including the, the Battle of Beersheba, Jerusalem was next. And it took place on December the 8th, 1917. It was the first day of the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. But Allenby didn't want to fire on the Turkish troops in Jerusalem. He didn't want to damage the holy sites. So he asked the prime minister for advice. But Lloyd George said that the war cabinet was leaving it to him to exercise his own better judgment. Not satisfied, Allenby asked the king and the king told him to pray about it. And this he did. Allenby wanted the city to simply surrender. So he commanded the Royal Flying Corps to, to drop leaflets over the city, urging the Turks to just do that, to surrender. And this is exactly what happened. The Turks retreated and the city was handed over to Allenby without a shot or without a bullet being fired. As you can imagine, Allenby's entrance into Jerusalem on the 11th of December 1917 was carefully choreographed. And the war office gave very careful instructions. And these were the instructions. In the event of Jerusalem being occupied, it said to Allenby, it would be of considerable political importance if you, unofficially entering the city, dismount at the city gate and enter on foot. The German emperor rode in and the saying went round, a better man than he walked. Advantage of contrast in conduct will be obvious. So Allenby 
carefully dismounted his horse before he entered the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. And on that day, a soldier, Bert Pepin, walked through the Jaffa Gate just behind Allenby. And this man, the man that you see on the screen, would later become Brother Bert Pepin of Taunton Meeting and their recording brother for many years. And apparently he walked through the Jaffa Gates and he, he was amazed at how it all happened, how the Turks just retreated. And he was absolutely convinced that a greater force was at work that day. And he resolved that when he got home, he would read his Bible. And he did. And he became a Christadelphian. And this is a lovely photo of Brother Bert with his wife, Sister Elsie Pepin. And what a story he had. And here is a photo of Brother Bert with his daughters in their back garden. And it looks like they're enjoying the sunshine all together. And I've recently learned that uh, Brother Jack Taylor from Sheldon Ecclesia was also with Allenby on that day. And uh, another brother in Canada is pulling together a little dossier of those that went through with Allenby and later became Christadelphians. And the latest count now is nine, nine brethren came from that day, the, the day that they walked with Allenby. And, and none of them knew each other, but they realized that something greater was at work. What a wonderful story that is. I'm gonna show you some rare footage now of Allenby marching into Jerusalem. General Edmund Allenby's army swept aside the Turkish forces and conquered Palestine. Yet this was, despite appearances, no simple triumph of an invading army. So it was that Allenby was ordered by London to enter the city on foot without flying any flags. He appeared to onlookers more as a humble pilgrim than a conqueror. And remarkably, the local people were asked to believe that Allenby's arrival in the city had been prophesied. British propagandists realized that almost miraculously, Allenby's name, when written in Arabic, spelled Al-Nebi, that is, the prophet. And that was how the British presented a Christian general to the Muslim population of the city. Allenby was, as prophesied, their saviour. So we ask ourselves this question as we reflect back upon these amazing events. With the benefit of hindsight, we should ask ourselves, what is the historical importance of this declaration, the 1917 Balfour Declaration? What difference did it really make if anything. And once again, I want to call upon Lord Rothschild to answer that question for us. The significance, the historical importance of the 1917 Balfour 
Declaration. And the most difficult one, the importance of the Declaration to the State of Israel. Surely one can start off by saying it was the foundation stone of the state. And you said in your excellent book, The Long Shadow, The Great War in the 20th Century, that the Declaration itself was two-sided. It was a moral commitment, but an ambiguous one to Jews and Arabs. It had no legal standing. The public act of recognition to Zionism was to be formalized after Churchill presented to Parliament the Churchill White Paper in 1922, which was emphatic in its support of Zionism. That paper was submitted to the League of Nations in Geneva and approved. And as Weizmann put it, it represented the Magna Carta of liberation, a decisive event in Jewish history. And it gave Zionism the legal right to move towards statehood. And that in turn led to the establishment of the State of Israel following the United Nations Resolution of 1947. So after 2,000 years of persecution, the Jews were at last to return home. And as the poet touchingly Robert Frost wrote in The Death of the Hard Man, home is the place where, when you go there, they have to take you in. And every Jew in the world has the right of return to live in Israel. It's very significant, isn't it, that Lord Rothschild's opening words were the declaration was the foundation stone of the state of Israel. He couldn't be any clearer, could he? And it's so moving to think that at the end of Balfour's life, on his deathbed, Weizmann was the only friend admitted to see him. A lady called Mrs. Dugdale, Balfour's niece and biographer, wrote these words. She says, no words were said between them, for Balfour was very weak and Dr. Weizmann much overcome. Balfour moved his head and touched the bowed head of his visitor. In the silence of the room, the bond between them could be felt. Two great men raised by God in a particular time for a special purpose. But way back in 1849, John Thomas, a Christadelphian, penned a book called Elpis Israel. And it's quite staggering to think that he wrote the following words. 70 years before the Balfour Declaration was ever issued. And he wrote these words based upon his understanding of Bible prophecy. And he says these words in 1849, based upon his understanding from the word of God. I know not whether the men who at present contrive the foreign policy of Britain entertain the idea of assuming the sovereignty of the Holy Land. But the finger of God has indicated a course to be pursued by Britain, which cannot be evaded and which her counsellors will not only be willing, but eager to adopt when the crisis comes upon them. And this is exactly what happened 70 years later. And so this all led to the unforgettable moment when David Ben-Gurion got up and announced to the world in 1948, that the new state of Israel had been established and the world was shocked to hear. On May 14th, 1948, 
the British government terminated its Palestine mandate, and on May 15, 1948, David Ben-Gurion declared the independent state of Israel. What an incredible story. So when we think about the nation of Israel, let us not forget Balfour, Lloyd George, Wiseman, Winston Churchill, Allenby, the Rothschilds, and young Dorothy, and many more. But more importantly, let us not forget God and his angels who were at work to bring all these things to pass, just as the ancient prophets have prophesied so many years ago. And for some of us, these events have taken place in our very, very lifetime. Jesus says that when Israel is back in the land and Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands, these are the great signs that he will soon return back to the earth. It can't then be long. So let's listen to what the Bible says about what we should do with our lives because the Bible proves itself time and time again that it's an incredibly reliable source. Thank you. Thank you. 